Hello. According to my Chambers Dictionary, a friend is someone with whom you have a close, loving or intimate acquaintance. Going on that definition, my total number of friends equals zero. OK, let's try acquaintance. This time, it's a person known slightly. So I have plenty of those. But it's quite a serious and old-fashioned word and doesn't fully express how I feel. What I need is a word for something in between friend and acquaintance. Husband suggests chum or pal. I check Mr Chambers again. Chums originally were people who shared a room, while a pal could be a partner, mate or chum. Not helpful. But I'm probably being pedantic. Most people would happily use the word friend for most of their acquaintances. Like those people who say they've been to Italy, when actually they were on a Mediterranean cruise and spent the whole of one day ashore in Naples. If pushed, I could name women I consider friends, but I count the number on the fingers of one hand. One is my oldest, one my most recent, and one long distance. Depending on what I needed, practical help, sympathy, support, writing encouragement, I would feel able to call on one or the other. The trouble is I've grown used to the idea of friends as read about in books or seen in films or on television. The sort of friends that know absolutely everything about each other, would do anything for the other and are always just there. From the American sitcom Friends to the BBC's Mrs Brown's Boys, where Mrs Brown's next door neighbour Winnie regularly drops in for a cup of tea and chat, these fictional friends share the burdens and joys of each other's lives. I do know my neighbours, we even exchange Christmas cards, but I wouldn't dream of just dropping in. Maybe that's the test of a real friend, someone you don't feel you have to clean up for. For a while, husband and I were part of a group of friends, lovely people. It was just they already had established friendship groups within the larger group. I'm sure it was largely my insecurity and low self-esteem that led me to this way of thinking. And I know my issues with friends are mostly of my own making. But there should be a word for people who are less than friends, but more than acquaintances. If you think of one, please let me know. On the other hand, I have a very good friend in George, our dog. He used to be very much husband's dog, but in his old age, he's taken to following me around. I only have to stand to go in the kitchen to fetch myself a drink and he'll get up and follow me, even though I tell him to save his energy and stay where he is. I'll be back in a minute. In his youth, he could have done with taking lessons from Lassie. Now he was a loyal friend and intelligent. When Timmy falls and breaks his ankle while climbing in some craggy ravine, he only has to say, fetch help, Lassie, and you know he'll be safe. If I'd ever had cause to say, fetch help, George, he would have stared at me for a moment before lying down beside me to chew on some grass. But I wouldn't change him. And I suppose, really, husband is my best friend. He's certainly my rock, my safety net, my provider, the one I want to come home to, the one I want to cry on, the one who knows me too well. Through the different stages of school, I had best friends, but was never really part of a large crowd. In schools today, it seems you fall into one of three groupings, the cool kids, the sporty ones, or the nerds. Everyone wants to be in with the cool kids, but probably 
well, certainly my grandchildren will be better off with the nerds. But how do you tell them that? When they're feeling left out or others are being mean to them, quite often the ones supposed to be their friends, how do you comfort them? When they have to keep up with the trends, the latest phones, the designer shoes, or they'll be mocked, how can you encourage them to stand up and dare to be different, when you know in the first instance at least it'll make them sad and lonely? So they hang around with the cool kids, settling for being on the edge, not really part of it. And you have to hope they soon learn for themselves how to judge a person not by their clothes or self-confidence. But what is the perfect number for a friendship group? I was usually one of two. When it reaches three, it gets tricky. When daughter was in senior school, she was in a threesome, but at some point the other two turned against her. She was heartbroken. I was furious. I can assure you my thoughts towards those girls were far less than Christian. But three is an awkward number. Jesus opted for twelve, but within that group he had an inner circle of three, consisting of Peter, John and his brother James. On a number of occasions they were the only ones Jesus took with him. They were the only ones present when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. They were the ones with Jesus at the Transfiguration, and when a cloud came down afterwards and covered them, and they heard the voice of God saying, This is my son whom I love, listen to him. I wonder what the other disciples thought of this. Did they feel excluded, less valued? I think it's safe to say that would have been my reaction. If you've listened to any of these talks, you won't be surprised to know that. Certainly, the two brothers didn't do anything to help their own cause or make themselves popular with the other disciples. Mark tells us, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. What did they want? Oh, just to be Jesus' right and left-hand men when they get to heaven. Let us have the most honoured position. In Matthew's Gospel, we're told that it's their mother who asks Jesus for the honour for his sons. Although when Jesus challenges them, saying, Can you do what I have to do? They reply, Yes, of course. So even if it was their mum who started the process, they were complicit in it. Both Gospels then tell us, When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And quite rightly. So I guess we can say from this that all friendship groups, however big or small, however chosen and holy, are still subject to human weaknesses. But that didn't stop Jesus from gathering a bunch of men around him to be his travelling companions, his supporters, encouragers, friends. They were his pupils and he was training them for the greatest mission, but they were first and maybe foremost friends. I began this talk with the definition of a friend, someone with whom you have a close, loving or intimate acquaintance. I think it's safe to say that the men who walked the roads with Jesus had that sort of relationship with him. Lazarus and his sisters Martha and Mary were also friends of Jesus. And when Lazarus became very sick, Jesus told his disciples he would return to Judea, where they lived, to heal him. 
The disciples objected, pointing out that the last time he'd been in Judea, the Jews had tried to stone him. But Jesus is determined, and so Thomas says, Let us also go, that we may die with him. That's quite a statement. They could have let him go on his own, or maybe suggest he'd just take his favourite three. But here, Thomas expresses the willingness, which they all then demonstrate, to accompany Jesus, even if it means dying. Of course, they were less keen on sticking around when it came to the real thing. But at this point, they believed and were willing to prove they could face death with him. And notice it was Thomas, doubting Thomas, who said that. He gets an unfairly bad press, I think. But there wasn't anything they wouldn't do for Jesus. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul writes, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfil the law of Christ. Those words are echoed in the memorable soundtrack of the first Toy Story film, which came out in 1995. Entitled, You've Got a Friend in Me, it includes the lines, There isn't anything I wouldn't do for you. We stick together. We can see it through, because you've got a friend in me. Now those are the sort of friends you want. The sort of friends who will do anything for you. We see an example of this in Mark's Gospel. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralysed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Now that's pretty impressive. Friends carried the man to the house, possibly in the heat of the day, forced their way through the crowds, then had to get him up on the roof so they could make a hole so they could lower him down. They were determined to get their pal to Jesus, to give him a chance to be healed. We're told he was paralysed. Maybe he'd been injured in an accident, broken his back, we don't know. But I know I'd want to have friends like that who cared enough for me to put themselves out, to be determined, to want the best chance for their friend. Some regulars from Zach's have recently been helping a friend whose husband died. They've been spending a lot of time gardening and supporting and generally being there for her. It was their actions that made me think of friends as a topic for this talk and how precious it is to have good friends. On the other hand, there are some people you don't want as friends. People who will take advantage of you, who will let you down, who only want you as a follower to prove their popularity. Or people like the friends of the prodigal son in the story, who are only interested in you while you have money to spend on them. We're wise to avoid this sort of friend. Sean from Zach's regularly advises people, especially addicts or those trying to stay clean, to hang around with those who will do them good. Sadly, that often means not the people you thought of as friends before. It's one of the great hazards for men coming out of jail. They meet up with old friends who say, come and have a drink, have some pills, smoke some weed. Come on, it won't hurt you this once. You're celebrating being free. And before they know it, they're back inside, despite all the good resolutions they made. 
In that case, it's not necessarily the old friends that are bad, but the lifestyle that is. And sometimes, always really, it's good to turn to our very best friend, the one who is unremittingly on our side, who only ever wants the best for us, whose love for us is unconditional. I used to think that the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, was old-fashioned and of no interest. Then, when I was working as a church administrator, I was putting together an order of service for a funeral one day, and it included the old hymn. I read the words and was swept away by how relevant they were. It was written in 1855 by preacher Joseph Scriven as a poem to comfort his mother. Scriven was living in Canada at the time, while his mother still lived in Ireland. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And it's just as relevant today as it was then. It covers all our dilemmas. Have we trials and temptations? Are we weak and heavy laden? Cumbered with a load of care? Do thy friends despise forsake thee? Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. What a friend we have in Jesus. Thank you for listening.